This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Emma Lee, who is not only an egg donor, but a genetic genealogist. So she does all the sort of research and stalking dead people, as she says, by looking at DNA results on uh, sites like Ancestry.com and linking all those people that have put up their DNA results. Um, this was really fascinating to speak to Emily, but I think it's also got some lessons in it for those of us who have been donors and for intended parents who will be conceiving children with donors. I'm going to hand over now to Emma Lee. Hi, my name is Emma Lee. Um, I'm a genetic genealogist, uh, a perpetual student, teacher and worker on being the coolest auntie ever. And not really into buying useful stuff. <laughs> <No. laughs> I'm, so, I'm such a weirdo. Anyway, we, um, okay. we had some contact, I guess, because you are an egg donor for somebody that I'm assisting with their surrogacy arrangement. And we've actually interviewed them for the podcast. So, Kara, uh, I'm not sure which episode she is. She's way back last year. 75. Yeah, well, there you go. So I'm going to link that episode if, if anyone wants to listen to Cara talk. Um, so you're their egg donor. How did you come to be an egg donor for a friend? Okay, so Cara and I went to school together. Uh, my sister was in her year. She's two years older than me. Um, we were we're a bit, we were the nerdy, nerdy kids. We hung out at the library. Um, so I don't know, like Cara was always just really lovely and I think we, we had like this weird, very big age gap of, of friends. It was, it was a weird collective of people who didn't fit into being cool. Um, we were cool in our own way. Uh, so Cara and my mutual friend had a baby in high school. Um, and I'd always said that if I got pregnant, I'd just be like, oh God, no. <laughs> And Kara's like, I'd take that baby. And so <laughs> it was always a conversation we'd had. Um, and then I guess Kara finished school and my sister finished school. And we kind of kept in touch over social media and things. But eventually, you know, she went and had her life and I had my life. And then I think about three years ago, she contacted me again. She's like, would you be interested? Still keen? I don't know. I'm like, I'm not doing anything else in my life. And so she, she just kept asking me every couple of months or whatever. And eventually it became, so you're really sure. And I'm like, yeah, like not doing anything else <laughs> and don't have children of my own or plans to have kids. And then it kind of, you know, we actually got the ball actually rolling, which was kind of funny. Um, and then yeah, like it was a, a very long process. And I think everyone goes into this thinking, yeah, baby, baby going to be a year ahead in time. And, you know, three years later, you're looking and you're going, no baby. <laughs> so it's a bit, it's strange. Um, and I, I thought, honestly, like my, I have sisters and if they'd ever have trouble conceiving, like, I mean, I'd be up for it. Like, I don't have that connection to babies that most people do. Um, I have described it to a few people at dinners with the surrogacy and egg donor community um, that 
the way people feel about babies is the way I feel about dogs <laughs> and that I need to pat that dog. I need to pat that. Like you need to hold that baby. I need to pat that dog. I need to meet it. I need to throw it a ball. That's my thing. Um, however, I don't have a dog. I have a really terrible cat. <laughs> so I'm living vicariously through other people the same way I do with children. <laughs> um, but as a teacher, it is really strange that I have not ever wanted children. That has been very, it's been questioned so many times. Well, we were um, just talking about this before we recorded because um, I find that really interesting. And I think that's what we were talking about is the idea that as a woman, therefore you must want children and it's weird if you yeah. don't want children. And actually for a surrogate or a donor, <clears throat> we may want our own children, but that helping somebody else have children is fine because we may not have actually wanted children ourselves or may not want more children. And yeah. that's fine too. There's not this sort of one idea of as a woman, you must therefore be a mother. Like that, it's just a kind yeah. of weird social construct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because there was an episode of insight where these women were talking about not having children and then one of them accidentally got pregnant and they have a child and it's wonderful and lovely. But then there was this, confrontation between a woman who was infertile and she was pushing onto this other woman that is like well you're sitting there and you don't want children whereas I can't and I was just like wow you it's really sad and the whole infertility thing is it is gut-wrenching to me I I didn't think I would have an issue with um if if our egg donation round didn't go well because I was just like, well, I can't have kids. I'm like, whatever. But when things didn't go to plan and didn't go the way we thought they were going to go because, you know, I was young and I was, <laughs> I had plenty of eggs and they, the fertility specialist was, you know, absolutely excited. And then when it came to fertilization rate and things and it didn't work out how we wanted it to work out, it was really hard because I didn't want kids. It was this, um, I guess, uh, grieving for my friends who had, we'd spent so much time and effort and energy and money on this and grieving through that process of like, well, we only ended up with a single embryo after, you know, nearly a year of sorting this out. And that's where we're still at we still only have one frozen embryo and it's even a year after egg pickup now. And it's like, okay, there's one more chance and that's it. So after we had our egg pickup, which was amazing and textbook and great and drugs were super easy because I don't care about needles that don't bother me. Um, I donate blood all the time. Um, so I'm, I was really cool with the whole process, but I guess the, the really steep learning curve about learning about your own body. So the first time we ever had a scan, and I remember this because it's hilarious, when when our fertility specialist, who's a quite elderly gentleman, um, he's very lovely, um, when he did the scan and I could see on the screen that I had ovaries, I said, hooray, I have ovaries. And he's like, why would you think that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, how am I supposed to know what's going on up there? <laughs> like, like I had no idea and I'd been prepping myself for, okay, so most people go to a fertility specialist because they can't get pregnant. 
And whereas I was going, going, okay, we're going to do this. But what if? What if I didn't have ovaries? What if I had all of these other fertility issues that my older sister had gone through and that my brother-in-law's sister is weirdly, like I found her on one of the Facebook groups. I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm like, Sally. <laughs> so it was funny. And then, you know, learning about her um, process and then she was the first person I called after I got bad news. Uh, after talking to Cara, obviously, but first person I called because they were having issues as well. And it was just, I didn't have to go through all the acronyms and things like I would have with my own sisters. It was more, it was just much easier to relate on that level. But so I guess we, we had our egg pickup and then I thought maybe I would go through another egg pickup. I had looked at, at, going and doing this for somebody else because I think after, after my first egg pickup, um, I started to understand that feeling that, that other women, not me, <laughs> other women have of, of that emptiness and that only happened to me at a very specific moment. And I mean, anyone who, who goes into a fertility clinic, there's, there's medical places around. There was a chemist outside ours and the first time I walked in I noticed this rack of baby clothes and went oh that's just manipulative advertising <laughs> and then when we went after I'd started the drugs I think it was the last scan I walked in with Cara and I can only describe this as literally walking up the steps and then womb on the floor of just this like overwhelming hormonal thing and just going I know that this is only happening because of this because, because I'm injecting myself with a lot of drugs and like understanding just how insane hormones are. And the, like, if you have a little thought about wanting a baby and then they inject you with a lot of drugs <laughs> and then you're just like, Oh my God, maybe I do want children for about three days. I wanted kids. And then I was, that's it. Um, so there's been very few times where I've gone, oh my God, I want a baby so much. Uh, and they're very much determined by how many drugs I was on. <laughs> so, <laughs> and how many hormones were going cray cray. So the, the fact that I, I can recognize that. So first round, I recognize that. And then as a school teacher, you're in charge of all of these children and you're like, you feel very responsible for them because legally you're responsible for them. So if anything happens to them, it's on you. And so you don't, when you're doing yard duty for primary school kids, you're like, Oh yeah, there's a little person over there. It's fine. Now it's like little person, 12 o'clock. Like, <laughs> like I can, I spot babies and it's so strange. Like there was a girl like almost running on the road over the street. And um, <laughs> I'm just like in tune and just going, so it's not my child. It kind of made you almost maternal where you weren't actually oh, yeah. thinking, wow, that's, no. that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Um, so how did you come from that to doing, what did we call it? We call it genetic genealogy. Yeah. Okay. So how, genetic how genealogy, which is a very, it's a new term. Um, so it's really only gotten a lot of um, airtime lately because of uh, 
Parabon Nano Labs in the US when their genetic genealogist, Cece Moore, who is, I think she's a retired school teacher. She's, she's not young. <laughs> she's definitely, most people who are doing this are in their 60s, uh, that range. They're usually retired people. Um, and they've just, they've done at home DNA testing, like through ancestry, 23andMe, my heritage, there's a whole range of things you can do. Um, so she was doing that and she got contacted by a U.S. police department, uh, guy called Paul Holes. He's really attractive. You should Google hot for holes. Very funny. Um, so they got together and they were trying to track down the Golden State Killer in the US, which is horrible, dude. Uh, and eventually they, they arrested him. Um, they got a tissue out of his bin and they compared it. And with a sample from the seventies when he was committing horrendous crimes and um, yeah, nobody felt sorry for him because he's a horrible person. But basically that, I'd already been into family history, but the big traction there was that I also really love true crime. So I talk about a lot of things that I'm <laughs> taboo things that I'm not supposed to talk to talk about at dinner. Um, so it's not unusual in, in family trees when you start researching to find really awful things. Um, and those awful things range from suicides, uh, murders, um, victims of rape, there's lots and lots of uh, cases of incest. Um, and I, I come from this with a very scientific kind of way of dealing with things because um, I'm a teacher. <laughs> and I, I started off teaching science. That's where I was going. And then I verged off in many other directions. But I just really am fascinated by the way that the world kind of people move around the world. And so in Australia, we have um, a lot of first fleet families and particularly in my family, we discovered multiple first fleet families. And when you start getting back that far, all the DNA kits merge together. So many people I've spoken to and I manage a lot of people's DNA because I'm, I'm pretty good at it. I'd, I'd say I'm pretty good at it, but <laughs> like I can do things that a lot of other people can't because I manage so many people. It's basically like having a map of everyone. And so you can trace where certain people have come from, from their small segments of DNA. It's very tricky. Um, I don't think everybody can do it. I think there's definitely an element of OCD that's required um, that I have. <laughs> so my sister got into it as well. So does this mean, for example, if I thought I'm going to give my DNA to one of these sites like Ancestry.com, for example, where do you step in in terms of helping people navigate that? Okay, so there's lots and lots of Facebook groups. So just like our surrogacy and, and donor communities, um, which are, you know, fairly small compared to these family history ones, there are lots of people who are adoptees, uh, donor-conceived children looking for their donors, um, there's lots of people who find out later in life that their parents aren't their parents or their grandparents aren't their parents, or in our case, great grandparent, not the correct great grandparent. Um, and so when you get a lot of DNA together, you can get one kit and it can tell you a lot, but it really is a complete minefield because you, if you were to get a DNA kit, 
you don't know who else is tested in your family. Whereas in my family, it started with my sister. I bought it for her for Christmas. <laughs> and then I got my parents. And then I got 10 kits. And then dad and I went on a road trip and got every single person that we could possibly get that's related in our family. So now we've ended up with like 50. I'm not going to lie. It's expensive. <laughs> but it's something I, I really, really love doing. And it's funny because I asked Cara and Jaden before egg pickup if they'd do it. And they were like, yeah, totally. What if we turn out to be third cousins? And I was like, <laughs> well, it only, it's only concerning if it's Jaden. And then I did his tree and I got back like five generations. I'm like, yeah, nah, it's, it's fine. That's it's close enough. <laughs> I think we're good. Um, I, we're not first cousins. It's okay. But having said that, there are many people who find out that their, their husband, after they've had children, even, that they're third cousins and whatever. And in the case of, um, do you know The Chaser? Yes. So the TV show The Chaser. Mark the Beast, Mark Liddell, he married his own first cousin and had children and found out when they were like five. So, but there's nothing you can do about it. No. If, you, if you find out that something awful happened in your family history, you can't go back and change it. All you can do is process it. And so I always, whenever I'm helping people, I always tend, on, tend to go with the worst, worst case scenario. Because if they're at the worst and then it's slightly worse than that, we can deal. But if they're confronted with something horrendous and... I guess like I, I really try to, to tell people that basically you don't have to like your parents, which for the surrogacy and, and donor community is really interesting. Um, your children don't have to like you and they may not. And it is really, if you look at many, many, many different families, there's dysfunction in most families and it'd be lovely if everyone was so nice and loved their family. But I think there are some really non-excusable things. Um, I've taught kids who are adopted and they're probably still dealing with the fallout of figuring out at, in their early teens, um, being told by their adopted parents what's happened. And yeah, the fallout, it's not pretty. However, it's better for them to find out at a younger age than say the lady I had to tell who's 65 and had to find out her father wasn't her father. And that, that is 65 years of your identity just being ripped out from under you. So it is really hard. And as a teacher, it was a really, um, I, I teach a subject called personal development. And um, we had this very difficult question where the kids in my class were asked to stand of on a scale of one to five, like um, no matter what you have to love your parents. And there was some very conflicting arguments about that because, and they, these are, you know, 12 year olds <laughs> going, but you have to love them. And I'm like, well, the thing is that your parents are humans and humans make mistakes and humans make choices. And so I tend to, tr to judge people on, on whether they have made choices that are really have horrible consequences and they've done that anyway. So there, there are many people who make very selfish choices and 
there are some people in the um not surrogacy community but the intended parent side where i've had conversations and they have openly said that having a child is very um what's the word <laughs> i just used the word uh very um selfish in in terms of i want this child but you are creating a little person and that person's going to have their own opinions beliefs and everything and it is really tricky and we navigate that world in in such a a strange way where we're bringing children into the world and we hope the best for them but we really ultimately have no control over that a hundred percent we have control over certain parts of it um but yeah i i do tend to to judge people based on whether they're doing this for a selfish reason and in the case of Kara and Jaden, I just, I want them to have a baby so badly. <laughs> I'm way too invested. <laughs> I, I think too that there, there is that sort of crossroads of um, when we talk about, say, these, uh, the um, genetic genealogy and doing a DNA test and sending it off and having children through donor conception or even without donor conception, thinking about what's the impact on the children in terms of we don't i i own my own body but i don't really own my genetics in that i now have genetic children out there that i uh, they're not my children or i don't i'm not in possession of the ones that i have so it's that sort of i guess um thinking about what's their story and their identity and what do they own compared to what i own so when you're working with somebody doing wanting you to help with their genealogy what are the sort of things that you would give them as, as advice to prepare themselves for what that answer might be or information that might be uncovered? So always going with the, the worst case scenario first, because they can deal with it. The, the idea that getting a DNA test opens a whole can of worms. And so you also are putting other people at risk. That's, that's the trick. Um, so you may discover things about your cousins that you didn't want to know. Um, you may discover your own parents did something really awful. Um, there are so many things that you can uncover. However, the blanket thing I go with is the truth is the truth. You can't change it. You can't go back and it's very tricky to discover whether a union between two people that's resulted in a baby is consensual or not. And we're, especially when we go back to very um, much more religiously doctrinated times um, where we've got towns like Kilmore, which is really funny, where they dug up all the Catholics and reburied them in a cemetery by themselves. <laughs> um, when, when I discovered that, I was like, it's a lot of effort to go to. <laughs> um, and it's because the Protestants and the Catholics were having a, there was a thing there and they were like, no, we need our own cemetery. So you're discovering a lot about just what it means to be a human, um, that sometimes humans are on the wrong side of history. Um, the, the other thing I do try to tell people is that even Hitler has a family. Um, and, you know, bad people in history have cousins too. And that doesn't mean or reflect on you. So if your parent did something awful, that doesn't reflect on you because it's not a choice you got to make. 
the choices you make reflect on you. So if you choose to go and do awful things, well, when the DNA discovers that you did something really awful and, and the police come knocking at your door going, hi, can you please give us a DNA sample? We want to just compare this. You, you really, you're opening up a massive can of worms. And the, the thing that many people who are, are really behind all this is it's all truth. So you can't get away with, with basically trying to hide it under the carpet. Um, a, a relationship either happened or it didn't. There's many things that we're learning about donor conceived people um, now because, well, donor conceived people only became kind of in the seventies was it, or the eighties, eighties. Um, we're now learning a lot about uh, the forced adoptions in throughout history, but predominantly we're learning a lot about the ones in the sixties and the seventies because those are the age of people who are into their family history and, doing um dna testing more regularly because they have disposable income we're learning a lot more about white history because a lot wealthier and more likely to find it it's a lot more well documented we're learning uh gradually about the stolen generation a lot more which is amazing because i would love to work in that area um but the problem is that we have and i mean it's divisive uh, we have stupid politicians who are going out there saying that you shouldn't be getting ab study if you can't prove that you're 25% Aboriginal. And I'm like, that's not how this works. The DNA is like, there's not enough. The percentages are just a percentage. That little pie chart changes all the time because we're learning so much about what it is in the DNA. And you, it's not, a hundred percent solid at this point in time, but we are getting closer and closer to it being amazingly accurate, at least to a certain percentage. Um, we learn like if you really want to get into DNA, you should probably have at least a year 11, 12 biology, uh, background that's minimum. Um, because that, those are the subjects that do, um, genetics and inheritance and carrying and you've got um, karyotypes and there's lots of language that go with this. So there's some DNA kits that are better if you're male or female. There's lots and lots to learn. But there are so many people working on this uh, all over the world that we are just getting a massive picture of where everyone has come from and whose families are all interconnected and where the, I guess, the big, like in my family, it's really easy to do because big Roman Catholic families with like 12 children. And it's just like, bam, bam, bam. You're all there. You're all fit. You're all, everyone's testing. You've got, you know, fairly white people who have got good jobs in solid communities have lived in, the Aubrey area for far too long, <laughs> far too long to consider dating anyone in that entire radius. <laughs> like don't um, even go I've there. Heard from, I've heard from donor conceived adults that talk about their experience. Uh, first of all, of finding out they're donor conceived and then trying to track down who their donor might've been. And sometimes that's with DNA testing sites. Um, and there's sort of anxieties that they might have. So things like, for example, wanting to test their partner before they become intimate because they're worried that they might be related to them. Um, I guess my question is, 
if you're talking to somebody that might be conceiving a child with a donor, what would your advice be about sharing that story with the child once they're old enough to understand? It's, it's tricky if they're a known donor. So if it's friend, I would definitely do what I did in the case of Jaden and Kara. Um, even my own, my own sister. <laughs> I, I got my sister's husband to be uh, about a month before they got married. <laughs> <laughs> to do DNA test and um yeah it's, it's fine the DNA results came back the week before they got married <laughs> just checking yeah it would have been um but you know what? I think they still would have gotten married anyway <laughs> like if if they weren't that closely related they still would have I think a hundred dollars for peace of mind is a bargain um because the ramifications of finding out after you've conceived a child are horrendous, but at least knowing, I guess. So if it's an unknown donor or a donor through a clinic, um, I, I'd hope the genetic testing is there, but I don't know whether the genetic testing would do as much research as what I can do um, in terms of, just getting the DNA test specifically on ancestry. I work a lot because it is the better place to test um, because you can put your DNA on other ones, but finding out who somebody is through their DNA, you can pretty much, I can identify most matches that are on my sister's DNA kit because I've gone through and I can see which part of the family they're in. And so I can tell which like, subfamily they're part of and it becomes very easy when you've got as many dna kits on one tree like i do and then there are other people who have the same kind of things where they've got twenty thousand people on a tree they've identified them all with dna and now because dna the ancestry changed they there's this new thing where you can actually attach them which is great because the back algorithm in ancestry is now so good at being able to piece where people fit and gives you a much better and clearer idea. And so when you have very complicated families where the paper trail that most people who are doing family history research doesn't help, the genetic stuff comes in and you can really clearly see this person, you don't know what their name is unless they've used their name. And some people use pseudonyms. I often refer to this, like what I do as, stalking dead people <laughs> because it really is you're tracing through trove which is like the online newspapers and you're going through and you're finding um the death notice and then they list all of the children and it's like yep that child so it's that one it has to be that one she married a this person because their wedding invitation thing was advertised and so you it's it's a big jigsaw that only in time will it'll all be pieced together and it's very it becomes very obvious when people are covering things up um or don't want to know but the, the thing is you can't stop anyone doing this because it is all freedom of information um there is no so the ground rules for all of these sites are you don't have living people so their names aren't seen unless they're attached to their dna kit so when somebody uses um, a pseudonym peaches some numbers after it i know who you are um, it it's very annoying but i can tell who they are because 
all you've got to do is go through the death notices. And very conveniently, when you're my, my great aunt died during the middle of coronavirus and um, she's two of her sisters became nuns and her motto was, well, I've got to make up the numbers. So she had 18 children. Wow. Uh, she passed away during coronavirus and obviously the 150 plus people that is, she is genetically <laughs> linked to and it lists every single child all their children, all their grandchildren. It was very helpful. I'm forever thankful to Gerard, who I'm pretty sure put it in there, because that made me fill out the entire, like their whole side of my family. It was like 150 people, just bam, 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 bam. And then I, it also had their um, husbands and wives' maiden names, and I was like, yes, <laughs> it was just great. Um, and it's, so I'm thinking because yeah. I know some people are a bit reluctant to sort of engage with the sites. Um, because they're worried about, um, I guess, Big Brother watching them, that sort of stuff. Yeah. If I decided I'm not going to give my DNA to one of these sites, but then I find out that perhaps uh, a parent or a child or my sister decided to give their details to the site, does that mean that my my DNA yep. is now out there and I haven't had a choice about that? So I guess... I can pretty much figure out who you are. If your sister or your parent, I can, I can figure out who somebody is on my tree... Um, because of what I know the tree very well, I can figure out somebody fifth cousin. Most people can pretty regularly figure out um, third cousins. And who knows their third cousins? No one. <laughs> like That's a lot of people in some families. But I can identify out to fifth, possibly there's some sixth cousins that I've definitely identified exactly where they come from. But it is a matter of whether they've got a tree uh, how many other people have DNA tested, how big your family is. Um, if you are half siblings, that also shows up, but you don't know whether you've got a half sibling, a cousin that is adopted. You, you just don't know until you do the test. And so it is really opening a can of worms. Um, I, I find it so fascinating because it really makes you understand the history of Australia in turn, like for me, because I, I am mostly very white Australian and old, old families Australian. So it is really eye opening to see um, all the Prussian immigrants from the 1850s because the Prussian um, war was going on. So watching them all basically arrive in South Australia and all these Lutheran communities created through to, to Waller and Walbundry and, and just so many different cultures. And those cultures are still alive in those regions. Like there's, they have days in Mildura and in, um, I think it's like Rand or something where they all wear Lado's and then drink beer all day. And it's just like, and that's why they have a German festival in that town. And you, you just go out to these cemeteries and you see like um, people's, people's names and like the, the really old matriarchs and patriarchs have got the best headstones and they're usually so big and lavish because those are the families that have big families and then their children are buried in the same cemetery. And it's, you start to see this really big picture of how interconnected all of these families and all the individuals are that it becomes very scary to date in the Aubrey area. <laughs> like it, it really is like, um, for parents who are conceiving with a donor 
and for donor conceived people, it really does bring home the fact that there's nothing anonymous about this. If you think mm, that you're getting really. an anonymous donor from Australia, mm -hmm. from a clinic, from overseas, wherever, whether it's egg or sperm donor, some countries have rules around not knowing the, the donor's um, uh, identity. And the fact is that you can find out who they are by doing a DNA yep. test. And if you don't do it, your may grow up and want to do it anyway. Yeah. Yep. And like, even if you don't want to know the fact that your siblings, parents, any, anyone who gets a DNA kit and this, in this day and age, if you've got family that are, are even curious about their family history. And I mean, those, those ancestry ads are very lucrative <laughs> um, because you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Um, they're like, yeah, just get this lovely little pie chart that shows who you are and you're 3% Viking and you can go and wear a Viking helmet <laughs> and 3% Scottish and you can go wear a kilt. Um, no, if, if anything, I can tell you that like even your last name doesn't tell you a, a very great deal. So if you're at um, mapping their DNA and finding out where all their relatives are, how would they find help from somebody like yourself? Um, okay. There's many, well, it depends on who you are and where your family's from because there are so many resources out there. There are lots of Facebook groups. Um, the biggest one educational thing I've ever come across is this lady, uh, Julie Dixon Jackson. She has a podcast. It's called um, cut off jeans. She's an Australian woman. Um, she lives in the U S so she does have an accent. Also, if you really like, um, theater, musical theater, she's very funny. Um, but she is so into this and is amazing. She, uh, helps track, um, repatriated soldiers remains. Um, and among other things, she does a lot. Um, but the, the podcast is very long and in depth. And I think she does a really good job of breaking it all down. Um, it's a lot of things I already knew. Um, there's also some things that I learned from high school biology and science at, at uni. But I think for the beginner, definitely listen to that. And then, so she tells her story of how she came to find her genetic um, parents. And then she starts interviewing a lot of people who are adoptees and not all stories are good. Um, some of the stories are wonderful, but there are, it gives a very big perspective on everyone else's situations where you've got um, unwed mothers who, who are, have their baby taken from them at birth. It, there's a lot of stigma and stories about that. So there's a particular one that uh, just is gut wrenching, but it is a happy ending. So it's okay. Um, from Leslie and she's from Queensland and I think a lot of people would be quite surprised at just how awful the medical system used to be. I'm glad that we have learnt from that. Um, but a lot of the, the best practice ideas that we have around donor conceived children are coming from that environment, from the adoptees and the um, forced uh, give up babies. It's like it's, it is really important that, the child knows quite young. Um, it's, it's devastating after, um, after they're 18. And I, I think you had somebody on your, on here that was um, Vada. Yes. Working for Vada. Like, 
yeah. how do I get a job doing that? Because <laughs> um, I've had those conversations and I was just like, oh, I know those feelings and, and just how tentatively you have to, to tread on everything because it is life-changing to find out you're not adopted. I absolutely take my role so seriously because even though I'm not paid to do this, I understand just how vital someone like me helping people can be. Um, like I've, I've had to tell people that if somebody paid me a dollar for an hour of work to work on your family tree, you would be very quickly owing me about a thousand dollars because I just need to know where everyone fits <laughs> and I, I need to research it and I need to be really solid in the evidence that tells me that. So there's been a lot of times where I have done a lot of research. It's been really valuable, but I think also for, for people that are considering finding their um, or lodging their DNA test to find out how they fit and where all their relatives are, but also for understanding donor conception and what that impact is for if they're having a donor conceived child, knowing that telling the story early is, is um, important but also being really open about the donor conception as much as they can be and giving that opportunity, knowing that the minute they do a DNA test and send it off to a site, they're going to find out things that maybe they don't want to know, but that that is part of who they are and their own identity. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, if anyone does actually like want assistance, help, whatever, just Google me, you'll find me. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. Like I really appreciate your podcast so much. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you are looking for more information, you can find it on the blog. Listen to more podcast episodes at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at sarah at sarahjefford.com.